Are you ready? Ready to release internal pain? To find confidence, clarity, and direction for your future? To live a life of meaning, fulfillment, and contribution? To trust your intuition again, but something's been holding you back? You've come to the right place. Welcome. I'm Ian Hawkins, the host and founder of the Grief Code podcast. Together, let's heal your unresolved or unknown grief by unlocking your grief code. As you tune in to each episode, you will receive insight into your own grief, how to eliminate it and what to do next. Before we start, I have one request. If any new insights or awareness land with you during this episode, please send me an email at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com and let me know what you found. I know the power of this work and I love to hear the impact these conversations have. Okay, let's get into it. When you're an empath or sensitive to other people's emotions, like I know all of you are, it can have a real impact on you growing up and then continue to do so into your adult years. Today's guest, Stephanie Pinto, describes her journey, particularly around anxiety and the impact that had to the point where it would make her faint, describes the the pressure that would build in different situations and the, the impact of being that people pleaser and the needing to keep everyone happy and then, and then at different times not wanting to let anyone down. So like I said, I, I know a lot of you all resonate with those sort of messages. I learned heaps out of this one, sharing her knowledge around emotional intelligence, particularly from that scientific perspective. So I hope you take as much out of it as I did. Enjoy. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's guest, Stephanie Pinto. How are you, Steph? Mm, I'm feeling good, a little bit nervous. <laughs> oh, nothing to be nervous about. Oh, you're uh, an expert in emotional intelligence for children and, and, and specifically, from what I read, actually helping parents to build mm-hmm. their emotional intelligence. So I know there's not a lot of parents who will be listening to this who will be keen to get some tips on this. So how do you end up doing that for your yeah work Steph? Mm, Well um, I haven't been doing it all that long I've been doing it for probably about five years Um, and before that I was a pediatric speech pathologist so um, obviously worked in and around kids all the time and that was my bread and butter and it was from a you know language communication um, articulation kind of point of view but um, towards the end of that which was about 10 years I worked um, as a speechy Um, I really, I mean, I discovered emotional intelligence just online as you do, you know, stuff was coming in my feed and I was like, what is this weird, like fluffy, you know, why are we talking about this? This is a thing talking about emotions and being intelligent, but very quickly I got really captured by it. And I think I found, um, it was something very foreign to me <laughs> yeah, yeah. just because of how I was raised. And, you know, a lot of us were raised, I think, that way, not really um, talking about emotions, not valuing them, not kind of giving that time to them. 100%. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I found it fascinating and um, it seemed like a bit of a superpower almost. I thought, wow, you can have a handle on your emotions and be confident and resilient. And anyway, so long story short, I did um, – maybe kind of burn out a bit as a speech pathologist. Um, just that, that was around the time, the last few years of which the NDIS came in. So all the funding packages changed and everything was kind of business model And um, mm. yeah, so there was a big change. And um, I thought, you know what, I wonder if I could kind of run 
something on the side with doing emotional intelligence for parents because I, I kind of get kids, you know, I've got that training. I've got two kids of my own, but like I get how they tick and I get what motivates them. And, and I think sometimes like they do. So, um, and yeah, I just remember thinking, why aren't we doing this emotional intelligence stuff for kids when they are young um, and just raising them in an emotionally intelligent culture rather than waiting till we're in our 30s or 40s and it's it's something we do at work as professional development or, you know, someone comes in and does a seminar. Yeah. So, yeah, it's kind of grew for me. That's cool. When you look back, do you feel like as a speech pathologist you were already teaching emotional intelligence to these children? Because I imagine that's part of peeling back the layers to help them speak, right? Yes, yeah. So it was um, a big part of my speech pathology career. I worked with autistic kids, kids with ADHD. So I was in that neurodivergent space already. And yeah. a big part, and, and my last position was at um, Aspect, which is Autism Spectrum Australia. So that was very rewarding, very challenging. Um, a lot of the time I felt out of my depth and like I was this newbie who knew nothing. Um, but yes, along with communication and language and um you know, pragmatics and stuff like that. There's actually a lot of social and emotional skills and teaching that we were doing um, for the kids just so that they knew how to handle friendships and ask for what they wanted and, and advocate for themselves um, and express themselves and stuff. So, yeah, kind of interlinked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, massively rewarding, I imagine, to, to help them get those breakthroughs when they've suddenly been able to communicate how they want to. Yeah, just to like think about it, not to be able to get your needs met and not to be able to ask what you want or say, I don't want that. It's enough, too much, stop it, you know. <laughs> no wonder, you know, these kids are sometimes very frustrated because, yeah, communication is huge. So <laughs> I feel like that's part of what I do for adults now, <laughs> to be able to communicate in an effective way to have their needs met because you think about like how often those patterns follow us through into adulthood and then they present in certain ways. And I, and I know for you that was in a, in a particularly uh, overwhelming way, I guess you would say, you described to mm -hmm. me a scene. So, yeah, for the listeners, please let us know mm -hmm. sort of how things unfolded for you around um, mm -hmm. life stopping you in its tracks. Yeah, so um, as a quick backstory, I was what you would probably call high-functioning and anxious, <laughs> like I had a high-functioning high anxiety. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, uh, I would say, you know, I mean, we all know that the soup that we're kind of swimming in as kids really programs us. And I learned not to speak up, um, not that I was explicitly taught. Like, you know, I, I often say to people, um, my parents are beautiful. They, you know, we had a great childhood and, and so on. But I learned not to speak up. I learned not to express myself. I learned to just kind of get on with it and um, be a good girl and not rock the boat and not ruffle the feathers, all of those sayings. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it kind of um, was obviously very unproductive. It did not help me in certain situations where when I got really anxious or nervous um, rather than just the kind of sweaty palms and the heart racing, um, my body's response was to really go to the extreme and faint. Um, so I was, yeah, I, I pretty quickly fell down on the floor, um, which was mortifying. And um, I felt, you know, ashamed and embarrassed. And I thought, what's wrong with me? And it, it didn't actually make sense because I was very fit. I was very healthy. You know, we did sport as kids and, um, you know, we, we ate well and stuff. like. I was like, you know, I don't understand why this is happening. And um, 
I, I ended up yeah seeing a psychologist for a, a number of sessions, I think somewhere in my 20, early 20s, and um, which didn't, it, it, like overall, you know, it didn't really benefit me a whole lot. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, therapists are not sometimes worth their absolute weight in gold, but I just didn't, it didn't work for me. And I remember um, explaining to her a situation because I said, look, it tends to be when I'm at work or um, in a high-pressure situation or nervous. I remember um, fainting at, uh, there was one of the hospitals here in Sydney that I did a prac at as a speech pathology student. And um, we were about to go in the stroke ward and I walked down the corridor to see my first patient and just fainted because I was so nervous. And um, (laughs) funny, this is not the story we're thinking of, but kind of a funny story because I woke up in those little, you know, the little tiny kind of um, rooms where there's like a couch and a TV and the family can sort of sit in there. It's not a, yeah, it's not yeah, an actual yeah, hospital yeah, room. Yeah, yeah. I woke yeah. up there and there was about five people like hovering around me and, the, and they said, we got the crash cart because your pulse went so low. We couldn't even feel, we couldn't feel your pulse. So we were really worried. I was like, no, I'm just a fainter. <laughs> <laughs> I just faint. Like I'll be okay. Give me a few minutes. So, so I, you know, I was, I knew it was in those situations where I couldn't handle them. Um, it was just too much. I didn't realize it was about my emotions and anxiety being one of them. Um, but I remember the therapist saying, you know, you don't want this to go so to take over so much and go so far that you're, you know, with your um, partner at a at a restaurant and you start feeling nervous just being out in public. And I was like, no, I don't want it to get that bad. And then I remember probably not long after that, I was in a cafe um, with some other speech pathologists and occupational therapists. I think it was an end of year thing. And I remember thinking, I'm trapped. I, no, I can't do this. I need to get out. I'm going to faint. Everything's going to go black. They're going to think what the hell's wrong with her. And I was like, here we go. Like this is, this is, you know, it was a bit of a turning point where I was like, okay, this is, my body's telling me something and it's, <laughs> I need to get some help. Yeah. So did you remove yourself from the situation at that moment or? Did yeah, you, yeah. So I did what I always did, which was I feigned that I needed to go to the bathroom and, um, you know, something, I don't know, I need to pop out. So I kind of edged my way out of the booth and then just kind of collected myself in the bathroom. Didn't really, I probably tried some self-talk or something. I don't know. I really had no tools or um, coping skills or anything um, because I know, I remember one of the things that therapist telling me was that maybe, you know, if we move into a place of acceptance of this is how sometimes you you're, you react, you know, you faint and there's nothing bad and nothing ashamed um, to be ashamed of and what hap- so what if you just woke up and said I'm sorry um, I just need a moment I've you know I need to and I was like um no I don't want to just that's mortifying if, like help me stop it so yeah yeah <laughs> so that didn't really I mean yeah some yeah to me it's uh because I've had other people talk about that with I've had, some have had great experiences with psychologists, but others not so much. And to me, it comes down to the same place. It's like if they haven't experienced something similar, then it's hard for anyone, whether you're a coach or a psychologist, therapist, counsellor, it's hard to give something definitive. So when you weren't getting that response that you not just wanted but needed, like where did you turn to then? Like this is a big deal, right? Yeah, um, I probably turned to avoidance <laughs> for a while, yeah. I, which is yeah. like now that I do anxiety therapy, I do a particular program for kids and teens, and I often say I wish that was around when I was young, um, yeah. but it wasn't. So I know that avoidance is um, 
very unhelpful and it just sometimes exacerbates the those feelings and the anxiety because by nature of you escaping the situation you learn that oh it's only safe because I've escaped I can't stay in it because it's too scary it's too dangerous and so I will leave and then my nervous system calms down so I didn't yeah I, I think I didn't do a whole lot for a long time and it sounds strange but just me continuing to learn about emotional intelligence and to start to have a handle on my emotions and more of who I was as a person. I was very, very, um, what's, what's the better way to say unconfident? <laughs> I was lacking, very um, lacking. lacking in confidence. <laughs> and so I, um, yeah, I think just my, a part of my overall growth and getting out of my 20s and I'm still, you know, I'm still, building my confidence and in just who I am and what I know and that I have something to say and that I'm I'm worthy of a space that that stuff I think because what what was underneath the the anxiety and the fear was what if people realize I'm really dumb and I have nothing worth saying and I'm stupid and I'm a waste of space like that whole that whole thing sits yeah, those beliefs wow. sit right underneath so no wonder if you think, oh, my God, they're going to find me out that I know nothing and and I'm a fraud and an imposter, um, then, yeah, like you would want to escape that situation. It's it's scary. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to ask you what, what was the scary and dangerous for you at that age, but but that was it, like you're getting exposed. Wow. And so yeah. why – do you know why you've – you had that belief that you, that you weren't smart? Um, I'm the youngest – well, without just painting a very – pretty pretty like brief picture I'm the youngest of three and I always felt like the smallest and the littlest and the youngest and the dumbest and um not not very intelligent like I didn't have much to say I felt like the little kid you know the freckle I was very freckly and (laughs) I don't know I just had this picture of myself as not very important and um I I know my brain will have backed that up every chance it got through when my older brother or sister did something you know, did something great or did something first. And then I followed, um, I followed my sister into basketball. Um, I followed her into netball. And um, I actually realized this a little while ago that in our family, we were very lucky. I understand very lucky that we were able to go to university. My sister went off first, who's the oldest. And then my brother went and then it was, I finished year 12 and um, my parents were like, okay, so what are you going to do at university? And I was like, um, and I remember getting back then it was the, the UAC book, the university yep. admission center or something. And so I remember yep. getting that giant book, yes. it looked like a phone book. And I was like flipping through and I was like, and I, I loved, I did four unit English in, um, in high school. It was, yeah, four unit English. I did, um, Japanese all throughout my high school, like seven to 12. Cause I love language. Uh, yeah. I loved creative writing and stories and, and language. So anyway, I was like, Oh, maybe maybe speech therapy like that that's about talking and language isn't it so (laughs) so there we go I literally was like um this one and so I felt like it was almost picking a something off a menu I just thought well we are all going and I have to go so um I better pick something it was like there wasn't an even do you know what those beliefs is like not even a realize you don't even fathom that things could be another way you're like no no this is just what we do yeah yeah I just feel like that it's also more than a coincidence. That's where you fell into, right? You're describing, you know, having something to say and, and needing to get your your voice out there and your message across and, and there you are helping other people do the same. That's pretty and cool. 
it's funny that if you, well, not if you ask my husband, he's lovely. But yeah. from my point of view, I'm probably the world's worst communicator when it comes to like disagreements, arguments, discussions, especially with him because we're the closest. I, we, we met when we were 16. So we like grew up together. So yeah. he's, I, I don't know, I feel like sometimes I'm still that old 16-year-old Steph who would not say boo to a mouse. Is that the right? You know, who, who wouldn't be able to yeah. speak up. I remember we had our first arguments just as couples do and I would crumble. Like I would fawn, appease, like give in, whatever, because it was so intolerable to my brain to be able to disagree and say, no, I see something different. No, I'm going to stick by that and I think you're wrong. Oh, my God, I could not say that. So, yeah, funny that you say now I, I mean, it was maybe meant to be that I fell into that because I, I really, I still have to learn, you know, I'm still learning how to communicate. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just thinking that my memory of going through that UAC book and, and I was sort of narrowing it down to, well, sport's a big part of my life. I'll look for sport and, and sort yeah. of where I landed, which is I did a teaching uh, degree. And I'm like, oh, I've never really used that teaching degree and yet I'm kind of that's what I do now, right? Just a different, totally. yeah. different word. It's called something different, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I love how these, uh, in uh, adverted commas, coincidences uh, take us to exactly where we need to be. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, that that you, you described it as crumbling. Mm-hmm. There's two ways I've seen this growing up. It's like um, we either experience intense uh, confrontation, so we want to avoid it, or we experience none. Mm. So the, the household's quiet. There's not too much going on. So the rare times that does something does kick off, then it's mm. so uncomfortable, right? So I feel like that was my family, and and there has been different times where I've talked to my siblings about one extreme to the other, either uncomfortable with confrontation or or the other way around. Was was it one of the two extremes for you that made that then going into that experience challenging? Yes. Um, so my parents are English. Uh, so we generally, again, super loving, super, like always there when, whenever we needed them and everything. Um, but we didn't tend to talk about emotions um, and emotional situations. And I know I, I've taken a lot of that through as an adult, as everyone does. Um, yeah. But a little bit of the, you know, if we had, if there was some, um, disagreement or argument, it was quickly kind of closed, closed. Clo- I don't want to say shut down, but like shut down, you know, closed off, um, swept sort of aside. Like we move on. Uh, we don't revisit it or rehash or repair. Um, I remember just, you know, obviously as kids being, we get told go to our room and things like that. And that was the end of it. So not like I didn't learn how to, I didn't really witness much, um, many big arguments explosive arguments ever that I can remember it was probably heated quietly heated words and then one parent (laughs) (laughs) acquiesced so um, I didn't really learn how to have those big um, blow-ups how to really stand my ground I think again like you know this is kind of some it's hard to pinpoint things from childhood it's happened so long ago but I don't remember um yeah being okay to stand my ground and have a difference of opinion. Um, I just learned to kind of go with the flow and not to rock the boat. And, um, and that meant I didn't really learn. This is an interesting thing. I didn't learn how to be angry. I just learned that it was really not best to be 
angry. It was not very nice. It was a bit rude and maybe disrespectful or too loud, too much um, to be quiet and things like that. So, and that arguing was bad. I, I still like, I had to get over that when my two argue, my two kids, <laughs> yeah. I had to be like, this is healthy. Like, let's, let's hear it out. What's happening instead of like, <laughs> stop it here. Just everyone go to their rooms, take, you know, you each get a, whatever it is. And so, yeah, I had to, I had to learn um, how to be angry. I, it's still very hard for me. I feel like I can get frustrated and probably passive aggressive, but I don't really get angry. And if I do, it's very unsettling and I feel very, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Uncomfortable. Um, and like I said, you know, with my, so my husband is Portuguese. So imagine like me coming from English, that kind of, and then he Portuguese. Expressive. Like, that's a very lovely way to put it. <laughs> I'm going to use that one. Baby, you're being very expressive. <laughs> so, Passionate? We'll, we'll see. I'll, I'll wave it on the and I'll say that. No, I'm kidding. So, yeah, it was very, like, it's, he's opened my eyes a lot to how it's okay, like, it's safe to disagree and it's safe to argue um, and not see eye to eye and to, to stand by your point, I still, yeah, that's a still big, a big learning curve for me. Mm. Mm, boundaries, it sounds like. That's cool. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. Let's <laughs> go there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I want to ask you about your experience with anxiety. So uh, having, it's not something that I experience personally to a huge degree, uh, but I've worked with people that have, and it's mm-hmm. interesting that you draw that link because you talked about anger. And mm. not for everyone, but there's a root cause around anxiety. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because what I found is a big one is suppressed anger results in anxiety mm. because it's like the nervous system is like needing to get this out so it reacts in a different way. Mm. So, yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear your, what you know because you're yeah. a bit of an expert in this area around yeah. anxiety, like what you know about root causes and impacts and that sort of thing and whether yeah. you've, you've seen that link between anger and anxiety. Yeah, so there's a few things. The, the one thing that jumps out, as you last said, the link between anger and anxiety, um, for a lot of kids, because kids are not so great at emotional regulation, they're not meant to be, their brain is not wired that way yet, right? Yeah. Their, their yeah. brain is still under construction. So... Um, kids who on the surface can look really angry, can be really controlling, really bossy um, and things like that and have explosive behaviours that can, not always, but it can be masking anxiety underneath, which is, as we know, that um, fear of uncertainty and lack of control and I'm not okay, I'm not safe if I don't know and can't control everything that's going to happen around me. <laughs> so um, actually mate, now you describe that, maybe I did have more anxiety than I'm thinking because <laughs> <laughs> I certainly resonate with those symptoms. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it is actually really fascinating. This is why I think of a lot of just me learning about emotional intelligence and emotions and what they are and what they aren't um, <clears throat> and what they do for us. If we can give them the space to sit yeah. in them and to value them and to honor them and learn from them. If we can do that, then I feel like a lot of the fear, it goes away around, at least for me, um, feeling certain types of emotions like anxiety. I began to almost, I wouldn't say befriend it, but just really understand it and go from that place of fear, like, no, no, I don't want that 
in my thank you, fix me, I don't want to faint, to just being really curious and kind of seeing it as my nervous system's way of supporting and protecting me, right? So every every um, behavior that. that we have is really adaptive. It's really there to protect us because it's it's serving us in some kind of way in the moment that we use it because we needed it. And so, you know, at that time I had no other no other skills, no coping strategies, no confidence. So, of course, I would run from that thing that was really scary and embarrassing. <clears throat> Whereas now I have, I mean, not that I want to faint when I'm like talking or on stage or something, but I have so much more <sighs> compassion for myself and know that my body and my brain and my nervous system was doing what it, um, what it was, what it is meant to do for me. Um, and I can tell myself like there's no saber tooth tiger, there's no brown snake in the path, you know, the whole, yeah. I can, I can kind of to an extent rationalize that fight or flight and that, that amygdala activity, but um, only really in the last kind of couple of years, I've been understanding more about the somatic aspect of anxiety that our emotions sit in our body and that, oh my goodness, they're We've, if we've shut them down for so long and got really good at distracting ourselves with work or Instagram, then yeah, they're yeah. sitting under there. And the moment we kind of shine the light on them, we're like, oh, yeah, look, right, there it is. <laughs> so that's, yeah. yeah, it's helped as well. I love that. And no matter what kind of different challenges you have, that compassion for self is so critical. Like That's a key emotional intelligence skill, right? Mm -hmm. mm, yeah, we're so harsh on ourselves. I think we're... We're harsher uh, on ourselves than anyone else. Um, we, we probably speak to ourselves. I know you know this. We speak to ourselves yeah. worse and more critically than we do of anyone else. I'd never speak to my kids the way I spoke to myself. And, um, you know, it's, it's a real shame that, I mean, let's flip that. It's great that now um, things like emotional intelligence is becoming mainstream, mindfulness, meditation, self-awareness, um, we're starting to see those, thank goodness, as I think necessary and normal um, and very human um, rather than, you know, silly or, or fluffy or um, woo-woo, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. We're, not just, we're not just heads on a stick. We've got this whole body and this nervous system that's doing a lot for us and, and to us if we don't, um, don't realise, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, you, you mentioned a couple of times around it, uh, that nervous system and that and that fight flight or freeze response keeping mm -hmm. us safe. And you said when you were in that cafe, because I want to dig more into that particular situation for those people who have experienced that, right? Mm. Have you done enough? Well, I imagine you've done a heap of work on this particular stuff. Like, do you know why you felt trapped in that specific yeah. situation? Yes. And was it taking you back to a moment <laughs> from your past? Yeah. Yes, and you've just made me think of another instance that actually I handled so much better and I wonder whether that's um, um, relevant to just kind of drop in right now. Um, yeah. Probably oh, a year ago, I want to say, I was helping my dad with some work. Um, so he's a builder and a carpenter and we were all helping him from when we were tiny, you know, doing little bits and jobs and stuff with him. And he needed, this is a two-person job. And I said, yeah, I'll come and help you on an afternoon. And um, it was 
in a um, person's second story home where they wanted a huge and very expensive painting. Um, I think it was of like Bondi Beach or something. It was like beautiful. They wanted that um, hung on the, they had, you know, as you walk in a staircase and you could see this huge empty wall and they wanted it um, hung right at the top so that you could sort of see it from below. You had to look up, but you could also see it from the um, landing upstairs. And so I was, we had made the scaffolding and put it all together and we were sitting up there and I was like, wow, how funny, this would be the time when I would probably faint because there's so much pressure in this situation on me to perform and to be, you know, to, to um, be good enough because I couldn't, oh my God, if I had dropped that painting, thousands of dollars, like, <laughs> and yeah. we were up high and the, the um, husband and wife were saying, mm, I think a bit higher, no, I think a bit lower. And in that moment, I was like, mm, okay, I'm going to take some deep breaths. I'm going to check in and notice that I'm feeling that um, it's so visceral. It's so hard to describe sometimes, but imagine, I don't know, that the if you've ever had a moment where you're, you've just been in fear or, you know, you've, you're late at night, you hear this like sudden loud banging on the window and you get that fright. It's like that, yeah. but extended. And you're like, oh, it's yeah, that wow. visceral feeling. I was like, no, 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 please, like. We're not going to do this now. now. Yeah. I'm at the top of the scaffold holding this expensive painting. And so I said, I called across to my dad down the scaff and I was like, um, are you right if I just go get off for a sec, have a drink and you can balance? And he said, yes. So, um, so at least in that moment I recognized and I kind of had a bit of compassion for myself and I spoke, this is probably the biggest thing. I spoke up and I said, I'm not okay a little bit. Uh, do you mind? Like, can I take myself out and just calm down? And I never, like, this is also to my dad. So, yeah. like, dad. Huge. For him to, because he's, like, trusting me with this painting and <laughs> I just have this memory. Um, mm. And, I, you know, before at the cafe, I did not feel um, safe. I know it, safe, that, sound, that word sounds really funny, but in turn, like, our nervous system has – the autonomic nervous system, by the way, has this um, kind of dual, it, it's picking up whether or not I'm safe or I'm in danger under threat, whether there's some kind of um, threat I need to deal with. So am I calm, regulated, safe? Can I engage? Can I talk? Can I listen, learn and everything? Or do I need to be on alert and like get the F out of here? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so, you know, when I talk about safe, like I didn't feel safe emotionally to speak up and say any time, I'm worried. I'm nervous. I can't deal with this. It's too much. It's too hard. I did. I felt like that would be outing me that I was this imposter and I wasn't confident and I was just a little kid. So that's going back to the cafe. That's that feeling of like, I kind of clicked on this word a little while ago that almost like sums it up. Um, and it's trapped because I felt like I couldn't get out of that booth because I also I was in the middle of the booth, like dumb place to sit. <laughs> yeah, but also yeah. I felt like if I say it in front of these speeches and OTs, guys, I'm feeling really um, anxious and like I might faint, I need to go or calm down. You know, what would that be met with? In my brain, it was what's wrong with you? Like just, I don't know, like, yeah, what's wrong with you? So hmm. I was like, no, no, I'm fine. You know, smile, people please. I'm, I'm, everything is good. And I quickly, yeah, so I, I really couldn't 
my brain at that time could not fathom speaking up and saying, actually, I'm not how everyone else, like I'm different from the pack. You know what I mean? I, I can't do, I'm not the same. I'm not okay. I need a moment. Um, I'm different. Even as we know, that's kind of one of those scary uh, limiting beliefs, being different, being less than, being unworthy. So it's yeah. probably a mix of all of those. Yeah. Oh, man, there's so much to unpack there. Um, I, I wonder, because we talked about, you know, the, the the pattern typically from our generation is that, you know, emotions were suppressed. We either got told how to feel or or it was just shut down really quickly. That's pretty common, which is why we've got all these uh, neurotic tendencies as adults, right, <laughs> which we're working through. But I wonder how often you heard that phrase, um, yeah. what's wrong with you? Right? Yeah. So that's what's playing in your head because how often, how often, is it, like, I mean, I can't remember saying it recently, but I'm sure I've spat that out at, at different times as well. But what's wrong yeah. with you? And and the response from the other person would be just to reinforce the belief that something is wrong with me. Yeah. Can I just speak to that for a moment? Because, yeah. oh, my gosh, you've hit the nail on the head in that. Okay, so two things. Um, I, I, didn't, I don't recall hearing specifically what's wrong with you as a kid, but I heard a lot of you're being ridiculous. Uh, that was the word, and man, which translate in your head. Oh yeah, what's wrong with you? Yes, totally. You know, yeah. you're being silly. You're being over the top. You're making a mountain out of a molehill. Oh, that wow. was that was yeah. a good one. Um, I I've since heard because I obviously work with a lot of parents, and I hear some crazy ones. I never quite heard um, rub some dirt in it, but that's one. And wow. you know, the whole I'll give you something to cry about. You know, why are you being so mm. upset? Blah blah blah. So I did hear, yes, you're being ridiculous or, you know, essentially you're um, blowing this out of proportion, which is, yeah, what's wrong with you? Like just, you're, it's, it's fine. It was an accident. He didn't mean it. It's a scratch. You're fine. And so on. So I learned to be fine, <laughs> what I wasn't. But the yeah. second thing I wanted to say is um, exactly as you put it, what's wrong with you? I remember eventually over probably after many years calling my husband out on it very, you know, mouse-like because that was how I did it. Um, and he would often say if we, if I did something, you know, I don't know, forgot something or, or mm -hmm. burned, I don't know, the toast, the toast um, he'd say, what's wrong with you? And it was a real offhand, didn't, like he, he, he never meant it really maliciously, but that was mm -hmm. his, the little phrase. And one day I was just like, why do you say, like, what do you mean what's wrong with me? There's actually nothing and he didn't, the thing is, he didn't see it that deeply, of course. And then course, he, yeah. he came to me later and he goes, you know what? Um, I, hear, I heard my parents say that all the time. And both of us now still here. I love that they're beautiful. <laughs> but we still hear both of them. That's their go-to. What's wrong with you? Like in their Portuguese. Yeah, 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 right. we yeah. And I'm like, babe, look. Oh, <laughs> 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 well. So it's yeah. just, yeah, but I guess for some kids that, um, I mean, yeah, for a lot of us that, that kind of does, it becomes your inner voice, the words that your parents will say. We grab onto that because our parents, you know, they can't say or do anything wrong until a point, so we believe what they say. <laughs> yeah. Um, to me, that's just such a great point around emotional intelligence that you described there is that that's when you know you've the work's starting to pay off when you can have the self-awareness to see it unfolding before your eyes and just have the presence to say, oh, I see that. That's cool. Like I'm not going to react to that person who's, who's just repeating a pattern from, 
from their childhood and and that's yeah. cool right because i know i've got my own and and, and that's how we can have better conversations particularly in the family unit because like we all know where, where do the triggers come the thickest and the fastest from our partners mm-hmm. from our family our extended family every time right mm-hmm. yeah i think every time we see our extended family generally speaking we all go back into that i'm you know i'm five i'm ten that kind of yeah, parent-child yeah. dynamic i think i think it's very hard to lose that <laughs> yeah uh well we just keep peeling back the layers right there's there's always going to be an element that's that's mm. there but it's just continuing to to do that when when you were talking about that moment with your dad like i felt like nauseous like and it's like i imagine right that that's all of these <laughs> all of these different things that you just described there the what's wrong with you the people pleasing the feeling trapped like all of those things sort of crashing mm. down that's that is that what it feels like like actually and, physically sick you know what yes um, that's how it starts. For at least for me, my anxiety, I get this real nauseous, like hit suddenly in the yeah. stomach, and I know yeah. rationally, you know, I know that now that's my nervous system going into, sorry, out of the rest, digest, everything's good, into that fight or flight where all my blood just gets out, rushes and things like that. Mm-hmm. And and I think to add what you said, <laughs> I, um, it's all the, also in that particular situation, I don't the feeling of I don't want to let in that situation, my dad down. I don't want to let anyone down. I can't not be um, helpful and good, just good overall, you know. Um, I can't not be that. I can't be anything less than perfect. Um, and I, de- yeah, especially in that situation, but in the cafe one as well. And and like I said, I, you know, <laughs> when I was walking down the stroke ward with my speech pathology supervisor, didn't want to let her down and make her think that I was this little student, I must have been like 19 or 20 and didn't know anything and um, so many situations where I think I don't want them to know that I'm not anything less than fine and I don't want to let them down because that's, in again, intolerable to my brain to not be a people pleaser um, because that's that's who I was like inside and out. It's so, I'm like literally now I'm doing this great coaching program and a big part of it is focused on... <laughs> not being a people pleaser and standing in my own truth and having my own space and being able to, um, you know, maybe disappoint people or let people down or just disagree and take my own path. Um, yeah. It's very hard to do that. And like I, I even told a story to her, actually my coach, and I said even just, you know, a, a year or two ago, if I was out to dinner with my sister, for example, we would both, be like, what do you want to eat? Um, oh, I don't really mind. Like, I don't know. What do you think? Or, yeah, no, like you choose. No, you choose. <laughs> like we, we could not make a decision to save our lives in case the other person was like, oh, I don't really want that. <laughs> <laughs> no, either they wouldn't speak out for themselves. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. They're like inner turmoil. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's a great description. Um, that don't, don't want, not wanting to let anyone down. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've done any digging around this, but it's like when, when you've got that empathy that you tend to like drag other people's stuff out, it's happening from such a young age. And then we talked about getting needs met. For me, it was like my needs got met when I, well, I got attention, not necessarily good attention, but that's all you know as a child was attention, was when I would react to family members' emotion and pick fights mm. and then you then go forward into other areas of your life and you're doing the same thing as you're just 
want to make sure everyone's okay you make sure and it just repeats and repeats and repeats like have you have you looked into your your own experience around where that may have happened it's a yes from that look <laughs> no i don't need to look there let's just scoot on yeah oh, no, it's, it's no it is very something something i say a lot and this is i think oh did i put it um one of my biggest quotes in my book actually which is obviously around parenting with emotional intelligence is that if we want to raise emotionally intelligent kids we first must become emotionally intelligent parents or at least yeah. work to become more emotionally intelligent ourselves um and so it's just something that like i said you know so few of us were raised in that conscious aware intentional emotionally intelligent culture many of us had the you know suck it up you're fine boys don't cry girl you know girls should be pretty mm-hmm. whatever that is so it's you know it takes you know this it takes time and work as in i say the work quote unquote mm-hmm. to really undo a lot of those um to kind of unlearn those lessons that we have learned as a kid we you know our parents may not necessarily have ever explicitly sat us down and said um do not feel xyz i don't want to see anger i don't want you to argue but man the way that we were received or the way we experienced our parents you know the look or the yeah. um, facial expression you know the the that sort of thing even the withdrawal of love or the go to your room i don't want to see you that sort of thing we learn very quickly what is okay and what's not and um yeah. i think so many of us you know a little bit to your point we the, the first step is just that awareness of, wow, look at how I am now and look at the way I'm showing up in these relationships or this relationship. Could be with my husband, could be with my kids, could be in, at work, you know. Um, let, like, let me turn my eyeballs inward, actually, for a moment and see how, look at my patterns. Like for me, I knew I tended to always, it's still my default response, to shut down and to kind of appease and to agree and to say, you're right, you're right, fine, fine, fine. You know, and I, that's, that's kind of me crumbling, but it's a very safe feeling because the boat stops rocking and mm. the wind kind of stops and then everything is okay, quote unquote, again, there's no loud voices, there's no arguing, there's no disagreeing and, and we're, we're safe together. It's very, it's very scary to me still to a point like less so but it was very scary if I had a big argument with my husband um I would often I think unconsciously think well this is it like where am I going to live who's going to have the kids like oh my god my brain goes to that I think that's just part of my underlying anxious um personality style is that I have those traits of which is which is really it's part of the anxious thinking style is to um over exaggerate and catastrophize, catastrophize yeah. and things like that. So that's me on paper. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, I have to have you back for a second episode. I think because <laughs> I've got so many different things. But are you a big picture thinker? Um, I'm. You know what? That that has come into my um, capability only in the last two three years. Before that, no. <laughs> so maybe just unlocking what is more of who you actually are. Yeah, I think because, the, like, at least definitely in my 20s and when I was a speech pathologist, here's the funny thing. I was very much in the 
playing small, downsizing, mm-hmm. minimizing. This is this is just me. I'm just Steph. I'm just yeah, yeah, a yeah. speech pathologist. But I was um, on the Western Sydney team here in Australia for um, for um, Autism Spectrum Australia. I was probably the long the 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 oldest and the longest, I suppose, serving uh, therapist. Um, because because I had kids as well, so I went on mat leave. I came back. I went on mat leave. I came back. And a lot of a lot of um, therapists in in that sort of profession are, you know, they'll come in as new grads, get a bit a few years of experience, and move on. I didn't do that because of the no, no. This is me. This is my. This is it, basically. Yeah, right. And so people would often say, "Why don't you go for that manager position? Why don't you? You know, you've been here for so long, and everyone else is new grads, speeches, OTs, psychs." And I was like, "No, no, no. That's that's not me. Like, I don't I don't need the paperwork." When really now I realize that I was like, oh, I could not be anything other than bottom level. Like I do my work, I see my clients and then I come home because that again was really safe and it wasn't me stepping outside my comfort zone. It was, um, you know, imagine being a manager. Like, st- I mean, I have a team now, but yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's very different. Um you know, having people report to you and um, have to, you know, you do performance reviews and, oh, God, that was not me. I didn't have that in me. That was that was then, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah and the, re- the reason I ask is it was just, I was just sort of joining dots in my head. I was like, I wonder how much of that uh, catastrophizing is actually predominantly the big picture visual thinker who, who sees like my daughter describes it as the like it's, there's movies playing like constantly and it's like I wonder how much of that because because I'm more of a um, sensory thinker there there is visual elements to it but I, but I'm more like it's got to be a more of a feeling thing but I wonder if the more you see like you physically close your eyes and you have that visual yeah or that you have that ability to go big that 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 would make everything close down. Yeah. You're like, that's scary. I, yeah. I think I didn't even let myself get there to see yeah, anything right. other than what I had. Um, and, and that's funny because my dad, as I said, builder and a carpenter, he owned his own business from like forever. He was a teacher as well yeah. um, very early on, uh, but came over from the UK because there were so many in the 80s, there was obviously lots of jobs for teachers and for builders and things like that. So he owned his own business and yet I never fathomed that I could be anything other than an employee, like at the entry level. Um, (laughs) And I think it was just my nervous system again going, that's not even, yeah, didn't even consider it because this is me, this is safe. And, And I would look at other people like you, and be like, ooh, look at those people doing that thing, written that book, got that podcast. Like, wouldn't it be nice to – no, I probably didn't even – I'm lying. I would never even think would it be nice. I was just like, wow, look at them. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, and then again, that self-deprecation starts off the back of that, right? Oh, my God, yeah. I was good at that. <laughs> yeah, we all we all are, what you said before, speaking up. Um, so, oh, man. Okay. If it's okay to just dig a bit more into the, into the backstory, you, you mentioned speaking up at different times, and and speaking up for yourself is one thing. But was was there times where, like, 
what I'm getting is that you were already hugely emotionally intelligent growing up, which is why it was all such a challenge, right? Because you felt things that maybe the average person didn't. Mm. Was there times where you felt like you should have been speaking up for people because of that, that uh, you know, lack of ability to go out? So that safe space that you kind of then go, oh, I really should have, like, is it like almost like regret or guilt where I should have done that? Yeah. Let me back up a little bit because you said um, – maybe I was very emotionally intelligent as a kid. <laughs> One of, I think it's like the first or second, I think it's like the first chapter in my book is called An Emotionally Unintelligent Girl <laughs> because I was very, so the difference, the difference, I, I would say, um, of course, I had that underlying anxious personality style, but also that I was an empath and I still am an empath, just meaning I'm more sensitive to the emotions and needs and thoughts or perceived thoughts, because I don't know what people are thinking, but I'm making them up really well. (laughs) I was, um, yeah, I I really had that overthinker, um, you know, checking, thinking the worst. Oh, I'm going to fail. Oh, this person will laugh if I even open my mouth, you know, those things. So I would say quite um, on on that end of the spectrum of being an empath um, and, on the lower in terms of emotional intelligence. So being smart with my emotions, being, you know, having an awareness of my emotions and how that's impacting and driving my, my thoughts, my decisions, my behaviors, zero, 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 zero. I just was like floating through life, pushed around by the breeze. Um, And like I said, very lucky that I had great parents and I had great friends and I did well at school. Um, So there's kind of a bit of a different and interesting difference there. Um, And, yeah. As an aside, I would argue that that uh, highly empathic child mm. Mm. is emotionally intelligent, but it's circumstances and situations and that lack of ability to speak up is what mm. takes away the uh, perception of emotional intelligence. Yeah. You know what? I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think for... So a big so there's two, if we kind of crudely break up emotional intelligence, it's understanding and having an awareness of my own emotions and being able to handle those um, and adjust my, you know, my actions, my decisions on the fly, knowing my emotions. But also the other side is knowing that other people have emotions, having an awareness of that, not that I can manage other people's emotions. I can mine. But I can't for them because I can't control anyone except myself. We, we all know that, right? Yeah. But you can manage yourself or adjust yourself based on how you perceive someone else's feeling. And we obviously know there are people in our, like you guys will be thinking of someone right now who is so emotionally unintelligent and has no, you talk to them, you probably don't even like talking to them because they either <laughs> chew your ear off, they're very dramatic or it's all about them or they're rude or they're blunt or uncaring, right? So those you know, those people are lacking that other awareness as in, you know, other people's being aware and um, being aware of other people and their emotions and and what's happening there. So I think I was super emotionally intelligent about other people and I took that on and I flexed myself like a, do you remember the little Gumby? Was it Gumby, the little green man who you could like (laughs) move into? (laughs) (laughs) Like that was me, but I was not emotionally intelligent about my own emotions and speaking up about my own emotions and how I felt, I just shoved that down. And um, for the most part, that worked very well for me. And then there were, yeah, obviously spikes throughout life where it did not work at all. And I 
crumbled and fainted. <laughs> Interesting. All right, I'm going to get a little bit uh, woo-woo here. Have you had your appendix out or have you had appendicitis? No, no. Ooh. Got like I'm going to write that down. St- stabbing, like when you were talking about that, uh, um, mm-hmm. yeah, the weight of it, I think. I've got this like stabbing in my right mm. abdomen. Like what is that about? That's a new one for me even. <laughs> so, <laughs> might have to draw the dots on that. Maybe I'll listen back. Um, yeah. Anyway. Mm-hmm. So, so you were saying, yes, you, you not necessarily within yourself feeling emotionally intelligent, but you had that ability to observe other people and, and know mm. what was right for, for other people. I think that's probably something a lot of the empaths listening can relate to is being that observer. You mm-hmm. understand what other people's needs are. Ah, this falls into the people-pleasing thing, right? Mm-hmm. You're looking around, looking at how all these other people can have their needs mm-hmm. met, never once having a thought of maybe that's what I need too. No. <laughs> yeah, it feels, it, it felt, um, it's less so now, but it felt very selfish um, mm. to think about what I would want or what my emotions and needs were. It was more, um, and in a way, like I've had conversations with people, I should, I should get your opinion on this. That concept of um, being an empath and understanding and having an awareness for other people's emotions and putting them first, the other people, um, people pleasing. On the surface, that can look very, um, that can look sort of altruistic in a way. Yeah. But yeah. underneath, I'm only doing that because no one better find out that I need something or I want something because that's selfish. So I don't want people to think worse of me. I want I want them to think I'm kind and I'm helpful and I'll do whatever you want because that's me. And so it's almost like I'm protecting my sense of self because if people find out anything else, then that will be, I can't deal with it. It's actually very selfish. So <laughs> that's the way my mind goes. Um, it's that overthinking. So, yeah, I'd say that's, that's empaths in a nutshell, right? <laughs> we'll do everything we can to distract from having to face our own shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if, even if it means like one of, one of the key things that I see, and this was me too, and it still is in different ways volunteering time take it they're busy right they're always busy you know volunteering their time here there and everywhere because if you stay busy then you don't have to worry about as those quiet moments when the overthinking starts and the overwhelm starts and all those different things it's fascinating and and like you talked about working a lot of people on the spectrum like to me that's like i don't want to say like my, my my eldest has got a an adult autism uh diagnosis and, and i'm reading through a lot of the stuff going <laughs> tick a lot of boxes there i think it's like Mm. people who are sort of wired that way not to say that you're necessarily autistic but there's there's tendencies of of hypersensitivity to certain things which means that when there's that hypersensitivity when it gets overwhelming which happens when we're tired when you're feeling trapped in a cafe environment like you're talking about Mm. and there's a lot of other emotions going on and it's all come caving in it's that's the the hardest time to, to deal right yeah, I think those um, those situations are unfortunately way more common than before, way more common than they should be. And we've just gotten used to the fact that we, we're in such busy places all the time, you know, cafes or restaurants or schools, classrooms, workplaces. Um, it's yeah. overloading to our nervous system. And yeah. we can sometimes think, we're fine, you know, I'll just get through this meeting and then I'll whew, have, have something to drink. 
but we're actually not listening to, or we, you know, we're not tuning into what our nervous system is telling us, which is very often, you know, we've got that heart racing, we've got that, we're in that low level fight or flight because we're, our, our system is overwhelmed with those sensations that are coming in. Um, and sometimes we're not, you know, if you ask OTs who are probably my second favorite, you know, people, I used to joke that I wish I did OT, not speech yeah. pathology. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, yeah. we always work so well, so closely together with clients, but yeah. um, they will um, explain about our eight senses. Um, people, you know, we, we usually taught we have five and we actually have three, um, I guess, additional ones. And one of them is interoception. And OTs have taught me a lot about um, that awareness of what is going on within our body from, from the inside. That's interoception. If we think of perception, that's how we're taking in information from our surroundings with, with our five senses. Interoception is what, what are those sensations and feelings that I can um, have an awareness of from within? And that can be, um, it can be emotions. It can also be heart rate, it can be respiration rate, it can be sweating, skin temperature, nausea in the tummy, bathroom needs, um, things like that. So we have those mm. sensations from within. And um, I think that was, again, probably at least for me, I had like zero out of 100 awareness of my interoceptive sense. I, I mean, I could tell when I need to go to the bathroom, but do you know what I mean? Like the heart racing and the sweaty palms or that feeling of dread when you have to make that phone call or you see someone at the grocery store that you really don't want to bump into. I did not have that awareness. Um, I, don't, I think, unfortunately, we don't teach our kids about that awareness, um, about that sensation. And to be honest, a lot of the time, beautiful, uh, like goodwilling um, teachers will say things like, you don't need to go to the toilet. You should have gone at recess. Um, or parents will say, oh, it's an accident, he didn't mean it, when really we're actually very upset and that really did hurt. Um, So we sometimes actually actively, um, what's the word, kind of uh, go against what our interoceptive sense is telling us. So I feel like we're on a tangent, but I I think that is so important to being emotionally intelligent because you've got to be able to have a handle on how am I feeling, where is that coming from, what happened to make me feel like this, and what do I need to do? Do I need just time to sit and let this pass? Do I need to call that person and say, hey, I really don't think you should have, you know, you should have spoken to me like that or do I need to set a boundary, you know, those kind of things. But we can't do that if we don't have that interoceptive um, awareness. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't think it's a tangent at all. That's perfect. And and it makes me think of what my, my daughter said, the the, uh, the realisation around that that diagnosis was masking and how yeah. it's a people ple- form of people pleasing, mm-hmm. so we put on a, a different mask. And and those of us who have that emotional intelli- not emotional intelligence, I'll, I'll rephrase that. Those of us who have that em- empath sort of nature, we we mask all the time because it's yeah. like forever different things are showing, and and so we go and oh well, I'll show up this way for this person and this way for this person, and man, that's mm-hmm. exhausting. It takes up so much energy. You know what? That masking, we, I mean, maybe in my circles because I follow and I a lot of um, neurodivergent affirming um, in, uh, influencers and, and people online, but I think a lot of us, we um, mask, you know. I mean, the moment we step out our front door, we are a little bit less, like, 
you know, rare than yeah. we Well, having but, to put proper clothes on for starters, yeah. right? Can't get yeah. it out of the Ugg boots and oh, all <laughs> But, but it, it's something very, um, it's something really pervasive, something huge and something dangerous, I think, for the neurodivergent community, for sure. And if I can quote one of my um, friends over in Canada who, uh, this is Lara Dawn, and she does a lot of work around um, supporting uh, ADHD parents and parents of ADHD kids. And um, one of the pieces of research she quotes a lot is that, um, this is particularly obviously on ADHD kids, is that by the time a child who has ADHD is 12, they will have received 20,000 more negative messages about themselves compared to their neurotypical peers. Hmm. So 20,000 more negative messages like, what's wrong with you? Hurry up. Why are you so slow? You're always getting distracted. Why have you lost your hat again? Where's your homework? Um, you should know this by now. Stop it. You're being ridiculous. Sit down. You're squirming. You know, all of those messages. Um, and it's okay. just something that, yeah, it's. Two things come to mind from that is one is like how many of those patterns are just repeating generation after generation and, and like like what we've both been describing our childhood, like we, like, I don't know about you, but that was me. Like I was repeating those same things. So I was inflicting is a harsh word, but that's what it feels like as a parent. I was inflicting these same things onto my children. But then the positive is the moment we start changing and the moment we create a positive ripple for our children. So this is a question I've been wanting to ask and, and thank you for the, the uh, effortless segue was like how much of the work that you're doing with children is actually work that you're doing with the parents? 99%. <laughs> yeah, they know that though? Shh, don't tell them. <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot of the, like a lot of my, um, I'll be honest, a lot of my messaging and posts and stuff, particularly on social media, because that's where I put out a lot of my content, is around do you, you know, are your kids stressful? Um, their beha- they're challenging behaviour, they're big emotions. Like that's what we think is the problem and that's what parents that's what gets parents to go, yes, oh, my God, she's writing about me. Like, yes, I've yelled at my kid. Yes, they never listen. Yes, it takes me 20 times to tell them the same thing before they do it, um, you know. Uh, but once we – so once we understand that's what it feels like and then we start to, like I think you said, peel back some of those layers, then we go, oh, yeah, well, that's that's how I was spoken to, like that – what isn't this what works if I just keep mm. trying or if I'm just a little harsher, if I'm just a little harder, if I just have a few more consequences, if I just tell my kids, stop it. And and if you don't, say goodbye to the iPad for a week. Like we've all been there. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, using some of those things that we heard as a child to try yeah. and get our kids to cooperate, to be respectful, to change their behavior. Um, the moment I, I just got a message, I think it was yesterday that I've screenshot with the parents' permission and I was like, can we share this? Because she said, oh, my God, the moment I, she had a very tough day and I've been, um, uh, I'm trained in something called EFT tapping. Um, so it's a, a mind-body stress reduction technique. It's heavily evidence-based, which is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she um, she just, you know, did a, just a few minutes on tapping to bring down her cortisol and her stress and about her kids not listening. And she said, Steph, I, I did it in the bathroom. And then I came out, collected myself, and she said, it was weird because my kids were noticeably calmer. And then she said, my eldest even started tidying up 
all the stuff in the lounge room. And she said, what is this voodoo? <laughs> and I was like, um, so if you, yeah, if you just work on yourself, the, you cannot, it doesn't make sense. You cannot fathom the ripple effects of when you do quote unquote, the work on yourself and dial up your own emotional intelligence holy moly the ripple effects are insane oh goosebumps that's that's it like Mm -hmm. we can literally change the energy in a room Mm -hmm. that's and isn't that isn't that liberating because we know you can't control anyone other than yourself you can't i mean how do you get your kids to eat or get in the shower or do their homework like can you force their hand like there's actually no way to work that out they work that out pretty quick right yeah so thank goodness that I can control myself because I can do whatever, like it's limitless to what I know. I mean, we have to learn, we have to know, we have to, to research and, and find the answers, but oh, it's all within me. Like what a relief. I don't have to go anywhere or do anything to someone else. I can be the change. Anyway, I'm getting too excited. <laughs> no, it's huge. Well, it, it's a message that, that I try and hit home as much as possible. So to hear that, I'll make sure I cut that one out for a highlight too because it, because it is. It's like you would see it all the time, local community groups, friends. I'm having this problem with my, with my child. Like what do you recommend? And I'd, sometimes I just want to get on there and go, I recommend you fucking look at yourself and you find out what you need to change. <laughs> because, but, but that's not what I want to hear, right? No, 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 and, no, no. And like it wouldn't have been what I wanted to hear either. No, like do you think I wanted to hear? (laughs) Uh, Imagine if someone had said, "Get your act together, look at yourself (laughs) and your emotions, and then you'll you'll figure out why you're fainting all the time." Like no one is going to come and save you. It's it's up to us to to just like you said. Sometimes we have that moment, that little turning point. Uh, It doesn't have to be a giant like lightning hits the ground. If you're listening to this and you're like, but I don't think I have, maybe it's a collection of moments. Maybe it's a collection of little realizations, listening to episodes just like this, where you go, oh, maybe there's something, you know what, maybe I'll just Google emotional intelligence. Maybe I'll just Google interoception. Maybe I'll, you know, what else has he got on his podcast? That's where literally little tiny building blocks go one on top of the other and you stand back after a while and you go, whoa, look, look at all that that I've built. Look at where I was. And now look, when my mother-in-law comes around, I'm less stressed and tricky. <laughs> like, you know, you'll... That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. I've, I've got a theory on mother-in-laws. I think um, they're so much like us that they just sh- they, they hold a mirror back of, of our own challenges. Mm. Uh, I think I learned that one pretty early on. I'm like, oh, damn it. That's why it's so frustrating. <laughs> I'm just like that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Probably why we get on so well now. Uh, but, um, <laughs> the the um, the constant uh, feedback from the external and the internal, and to me, that's that's a, a big part of the emotional intelligence is to be able. Like you've you've pointed it out from the scientific perspective, and those those eight senses. Are, I'm going to ask you more about that once we jump off, uh, because it's like being able to have reference points to be able to go between self and, and external and know that, well, we can control the bits we can control. Like to me, what you've described there is like, that's, that's, I've never really thought about it like that, but that's kind of like the essence of that emotional intelligence you teach. Is that, is that, mm. is that oversimplifying it? 
Um, no, I think it's a really good point that, I, I, like, I still have moments, and, and this might be a good little tip. I don't know if it works for anyone else. I have moments where not always in the moment, like in the heat of the moment, because that's very hard to do, especially when I always say when emotions are running high, your logic yeah. is low. Like it's yeah. kind of going offline. You know, you, you don't need that part of your brain. You're just acting out of emotions, fight or flight. So it's hard to do in the moment, but most of the time after a situation, I'm able to kind of like zoom out of the situation and maybe just replay it or maybe just kind of check in and go, wow, look how I X, Y, Z shut down, stonewalled, um, had those, you know, real negative spiraling toxic thoughts. You know, why me? I don't even know. Like every single day, no one gives me a break. It's all like, you know, whatever those thoughts are. For me to be able to zoom out and kind of check in with the situation, like you are saying, but also with myself and how I was showing up and what my emotions were doing and kind of that, like, you know, where were my, where was my emotional intelligence then? Oh, it's, re- I mean, great that you can do this in your head with no one watching. Cause sometimes it's, it's, um, you know, I don't want to say embarrassing, but it's confronting going. Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, for me, my husband, look how I shut down, look how I just give in, look how I go around in circles, as he would say, you know, in our arguments, like all those things that I do and it's, it's uncomfortable but that's where the growth happens. Like I have, I'm not saying, and I am definitely not an expert in communication in arguments and emotional intelligence, but I can at least recognize that I've come a very long way um, to be able to personally be where I am also professionally to be able to, like I'm flying out in a month to to speak on a real stage um, in front of maybe three, 400 people about awesome. emotional intelligence and I wouldn't, I would have fainted. I would have, no, yeah. I would have, I would have said no from the get go. Um, I would have even let myself get there. Whereas now I know in my bones, I'm going to have, when I last, uh, when I last did a speaking engagement in person, it was at a school for parents and educators. And I remember saying to my husband, um, as I like left to go there, I was like, I feel like I've got like 15% nerves and anxiety and the rest is excitement. Like I can't wait to share what I yeah, know yeah. and just to help people. And it would have been way the other way around like a couple of years ago. So, um, that's really yeah, cool. I guess I'm saying it's worth it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the challenges around emotions. They, they can be so similar, like anxiety and excitement. And it's even when you maybe change the belief, the, the old habit might still show up and, and the, oh, like I just have a conversation with a client this morning, exactly that. Like just to identify just because it feels like that old pattern doesn't mean it's actually anxiety. Like it's, it can be something completely different. Yeah, you said exactly. there, you said there, um, uh, oh, I'm not sure if I'm, you know, the best communicator. Well, the, the energy that I felt from the moment we jumped on was like, it's a real calm and gentle communication that you do, which is, which is, not common from my experience. Like mm-hmm. I, I feel it in how I'm responding. I'm like, man, I'm speaking really quiet and chilled and relaxed here. And and to me, it's that's it's a, a tell of of how you were showing up. So mm. there's more to communication than just the words we use, right? Yeah. Well, your your mirror neurons are probably hard at work, which is you know those those connections in our brain that when we see an emotion or a behavior in someone um, at some subconscious level 
or sometimes it's very conscious, we replicate it. And so you'll see people yeah, in a conversation, yeah. they'll, they'll end up both being leaning like this or they'll both have the same posture. And, and it means they're in sync and they're kind of, like you said before, I think you said in a woo-woo kind of, you know, spiritual way, we're, we're kind of aligned and connecting. Um, yeah, yeah. But I just, yeah, I find it, I mean, I don't know, is it, a, um, is it just something that happens or is it a compliment that, you know, when we're on, we're on a podcast or doing some interview and then we both kind of seem to flow and have the same energy and tone and things like that. I don't know. <laughs> well, I would say this, not every guest is as open as you would have been to having that trusting conversation. So I'd say it's a, well, it's a compliment to the work that you have done that, that that's how you showed up because it's not always the case. <laughs> Thanks. Um, well, you talked there about the, the mirroring body language. It just reminded me of this. So, like you said before, it just dropped in, so I'll mention it. I remember learning uh, at, in corporate environment that you can help shift a conversation by using that mirroring to your advantage. And I remember I was there with me and my, my second in charge and, and a staff member, and they were slouching more and more through the conversation as they got more and more uncomfortable. So I just asked a question and then I just mirrored, like I just went right down into that full uh, slouch, which was uncomfortable. And I'm like, I know I need to create a shift here. And and it's like, I don't know if you if you do any work that around parents, but it's like we, we uh, it's almost like mirroring back what's showing up yes. at a very conscious level to help create a shift. Yeah, definitely. And what, what came to mind as you were saying that is something called co-regulation which I know it happens to, but you know, amongst any two people in a, in an interaction, obviously I come from the parent child dynamic when our child is maybe um, upset or distressed or having a meltdown. Um, we, as parents, if we want to diffuse a situation, we can kind of bring in this sense of co-regulation, which means I'm going to more so than do, but more just be what you need in this moment, which is to bring my um, calm self as much as possible because that can be hard. But at, at least if I'm not meeting you where you're at, raising my voice with my facial expression looking, you know, angry because we know that we can either add fuel to the fire or we can throw water on it and kind of, yeah. you know, it's like it's people who are very good at um, conflict resolution and calming situations. So we can do that with our kids through co-regulating. And it means I'm, I'm not, um, I don't want to exact, like I said, we don't want to exactly match their facial expression because that would be, you know, we'd be, let's say if there's a meltdown or an argument, then that's unhelpful. But we also don't want to have this beautifully calm it's almost dismissive and like looking down at them. We don't want to have that um, kind of aura or approach. So I, I usually say to parents, you know, in those moments, at least, a, well, I would say approximate. So have some sense of, whoa, what you are going through is really tough and you are not okay with this and you're feeling really upset. So you can see, I guess, my tone of voice and my facial expression that I'm to some extent mirroring and, and which is saying to them, like okay. some, um, unconsciously, but also verbally, you know, it's okay. I get yeah. how you're feeling. How you're feeling isn't weird or ridiculous. I think I'd feel that way too, or that's really understandable. And that makes, you know, oh my God, it's like gold to anyone, child or adult, to say or to, to communicate, I see you and you are seen and you are heard and what you're going through is important and it's 
I, I value it. It's important to me. I want to hear what you have to say. That just diffuses off the get-go rather than, you know, the facial expression that's like, ugh, I don't have time for this. You're being ridiculous. It's just a book. You'll find it later. You know, how many times do I have to tell you? It's not a big deal. Like that just, yeah, that's a fuel to the fire kind of situation. Yeah, yeah. That's a great description. Because uh, you're, you're not weird. And mm. and it's like that. it comes back to that behavior you talked about before. The people pleasing is to to be wanting to be included. And so you're mm. you're validating how they're feeling. And that, yeah, that's that's okay. And then, yeah, and then steps to actually come out the other side of that. Like to me, that that must be one of the most rewarding parts of what you do is to to arm well your own children through your own journey, but the children that you help with these skills at that age, which like you identified as like when you first started learning, it's like where has this been? Mm. Uh, what a gift! Like to the next generation of of these children coming through, it's going to be amazing. Mm-hmm. That's that's probably my biggest thing I want to say is that we might not be able to fathom that this stuff is going to have an impact, but it's an absolute gift, you know, to think about if you're doing it for yourself and if you have kids, the ripple effects, you, you can't see them immediately. Sometimes you can, like with with that parent, I said, you know, she came out and her kids were calmer, but think maybe 10, 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the track, you are actually changing the way that your child may parent one day and yeah. and then the cycle just continues so we're, we're shifting that and it's it's well worth it amazing absolutely it's it's never work that you that you do that you ever regret it's it's always something that you think why did i not do this sooner right <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah. And you know what? Can I just quickly say, we were talking about mirroring before and mirroring in conversations. And I didn't say this when we logged on because I thought it was silly, but I very rarely wear black. And I just picked it out today. We're wearing black and you've got the black around the grief code. And I was like, damn. Yeah. Even the white background, like with the plants, it's like eerily similar. (laughs) I I noticed that as well. So no, not silly at all. Books and plants. Yeah. Exactly. Very good. Tell me, Steph, I, I, I referenced before, I asked you about being the big picture thinker. Now that you have unlocked that ability to think bigger, what's the impact that, that you want to see from your work going on for 10, 20, 50 years into the future? Mm, I want um, parents to treat kids with respect. Um, and that means that, I know that's a big, big statement and that seems like we don't at the moment and I, I don't mean it like that, but you know, there's still a lot of the kids should be seen and not heard. Kids should not challenge their parents or say no to their parents or why, you know, parents have the answers and kids need to be, you know, taught and they're an empty cup that needs filling. I just want us to kind of come alongside our kids. It doesn't mean we're going to lose our authority as a parent or be soft and the kids will rule the roost. It just means I don't have this power over you. Yes, I'm going to guide you and coach you, Um and here's a bit of a um, turning point. I'm going to use discipline, not punishment, to help mm. you learn because a disciple is a, a student or a learner. Um, yeah. And someone who receives discipline is, is learning about the world themselves, how to behave. It's, they're not a recipient of punitive methods and, and punishment and things like that. Um, so if we can remove all of those unhelpful lessons, if we can remove those beliefs and like I said, that you know, they they unlearn those lessons, and um, 
start to see our kids as worthy of um, our respect. There's a whole there's a whole bill of rights around kids and their their um, rights, children's rights. And I think there's still way too many places in the world that use punishments um, that tell kids to, you know, sit down, be quiet, don't show me, I don't want to see that, you know, emotions are bad. And I think that if we can shift that, we'll have a lot healthier teenagers, mentally healthy. We don't need to go through the rates of mental health and anxiety and depression, uh, but healthier teenagers then healthier adults who are then, you know, raising the next generation of resilient, kind, empathetic, strong, driven, emotionally intelligent kids. So that's what I'd like to see. <laughs> love it. And I love that you pointed out there that discipline's been given a bad name. But yeah. I, I, when you were saying that, it's like you take your own self-discipline into that, which mm. is ultimately all you, the child needs is if you mm. are disciplined with your own approach, you'll be able to meet their needs and you contrary to what people think, exactly like you said, lose authority, it'll actually gain it'll gain you more authority than you could have possibly imagined in a much more loving and caring way. Mm -hmm. Yes. The, we know there's, there's oodles of research now that shows that parents who um, parent their kids without uh, punishment, without threats, without shaming um, and things like that, those who inspire and, and um, inspire their kids and empower them, they do have the influence over their kids I want to say over, but they have the influence with their kids in those times when we, they really do need it. Like I, I want to be able to influence my kids when the time comes to not do drugs and not, you know, go out and, and do risky things. So I, I still need that influence. Um, or I'd like to have, I want my kids to, to listen and to value what I say and to respect my opinion. Um, and I'm not going to do that if every time they, you know, come home, they've stuffed up or made a mistake or done something wrong that I come down like a ton of bricks. So um, I think, yes, uh, discipline, not punishment, please. <laughs> I love that. And uh, I was just thinking about my uh, own journey of uh, 16 and 19-year-old and, uh, and we can have the best intentions for them and we're still going to have those conversations and we're still going to have, they're still going to make mistakes and they're still going to come home and, and that ability to, to mm-hmm. be there in a not judgmental way, don't have to necessarily like the behaviour but being that safe place for them to to discuss whatever's going on. Uh, yeah, it's, yes. again, that ripple effect. I love it. <laughs> Such a great conversation, Steph. Thank you for coming on and sharing. Uh, I just want to bring up one thing that you mentioned there as we finish up, and you said mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be this big moment. And, yeah, not everyone's had, like, you know, they look at everyone, oh, you know, I haven't had my big moment, but it can be a series of smaller moments but those smaller moments can have just as bigger impact. So mm. I love that you've really highlighted that because of what it's shone a light on is that the comparison with what other people are going through is unhealthy. To say that, you know, well, they've got it way worse off than me, it's like that it doesn't, doesn't serve, it doesn't help. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a, such a great point for anyone listening to really take on is that you, you've had moments, you, you can – you can grow so much from that and you can pass it on to so many other people. Mm-hmm, for sure. I love that. Thank you so much for, for coming on, sharing your wisdom <laughs> and your story. I, I learned plenty from this one today too. Uh, appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate your time and, and um, being able to, I guess, use your platform to be able to 
waffle on about what I love. So thank you. <laughs> Not waffle at all, but yes, I, I take your point. Because it feels like when we have these conversations again and again, right? But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, that's why I love this platform, to be able to give people a space to waffle all they like. Yeah, I'm, I'm as, hugely appreciative. <laughs> You're welcome, and especially as uh, well thought out and, and eloquently put as you did. So thank you. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grief Code podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please share it with a friend or family member that you know would benefit from hearing it too. If you are truly ready to heal your unresolved or unknown grief, let's chat. Email me at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com you can also stay connected with me by joining the grief code community at ianhawkinscoaching.com forward slash the grief code and remember so that i can help even more people to heal please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform